Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Gary Webster. I want to talk to you this morning about the five messages from the God that transform our lives. Let's pray. Father, may the Spirit of God uh, be with us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds. Lord, we're not living at, at ordinary time in this world's history. We're living in the, in the knife edge of eternity. So bless us, give us understanding. I pray that you will be here in a special way with the power of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank... Uh, uh, I'm glad my wife is here with me this morning, my wife Marilyn. She's the backbone of our ministry. And I'm saying that seriously, you know. Um, I'm just blessed to have, to have her to help in our work for the Lord. I want to talk about the, uh, an important series of events leading to the second coming of Jesus. Because, I mean... You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that we're near the end, don't you? You know, I mean, what, what's happening in this world is unbelievable. Um, never seen some of the things that we're seeing on so many fronts today that really should say, hey, listen, come on, this is no time to mess around. This is time to get serious. Uh, many people are thinking that way. Many of the people that have been coming to our programs, that's why they're there. They're saying, we, 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 can't, we can't understand what is going on on this planet. And uh, I've heard that now, so often. Right, now, I, I, I hope you can hang in there. Some of you will know, of course, many of you will know some of these things, but I'm sure there are some who may have not been exposed to some of these things. So we're going to cover some territory this morning. I want to talk about the Babylon the Great Prostitute. I'm sure you've heard of her, Revelation chapter 18. Who is this woman that's riding on a scarlet-coloured beast that John sees in the, toward the end of Revelation. Well, Babylon, according to John, is made up of three parts. So what are the three parts of Babylon? Notice what it says here. I'm used to reading off the screen. I better read off the back one. Now, the great city was divided into three parts. And great Babylon, that's what the city is, was remembered before God. So what are the three parts of Babylon? Well, we come to the sixth plague, and when we go to the sixth plague of Revelation, I think I'll come over here, then I can look at the screen. It's more natural for me. When we go to the sixth plague of Revelation, John says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl of plagues on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, you are familiar, I'm sure, with the story of ancient Babylon when King Cyrus, who came from east of what we call Iraq today or the area of Babylon, he came from the east and he actually dried up the river Euphrates. History records that for us and the Bible mentions this in its predictions. Now, when it says he dried up the river Euphrates to capture Babylon, in other words, Euphrates River is code for Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation. That's what he's saying. Because the Euphrates River was the life support of this ancient city. It sat on the river. 
John says, he now he names the three parts under this plague. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, like the, the plagues in Egypt. They're everywhere in the end of time, these frogs. What are the frogs? He says, like frogs. Three coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. In, in the end of time, evil spirits are going to be everywhere. John points that in Revelation 18 where he says, the earth is so dark that God has got to turn on some light somewhere. We'll see that in just a moment. So here are the three parts of Babylon. The dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. These collectively make up what John calls Babylon the Great. In other words, it is all religions, Christian and non-Christian religions, and all worldviews and ideologies on this planet that are opposed to God and His people and His word. They're not following God and his commandments. That's Babylon the Great in the end of time. These three powers seek global worship. Your allegiance, my allegiance, and the allegiance of everyone on planet Earth. John tells us in chapter 13, all the world marveled and followed the beast. And that is exactly where the world is moving now. That's the sea beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Then how is that going to happen? He tells us. He says, he, now he's talking about the beast that comes up out of the land. He, the land beast, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So you see, this second beast leads people to worship the first beast. How's that going to happen? Well, he tells us. Telling those, this is this land beast, he tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image, a replica of the beast, that's the one from the sea, and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And the result is global worship of Satan. Notice what John says. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast. You know, some of the things in Revelation are pretty much in your face, aren't they? But there's a good reason, and that's because that's where the world is headed, to worship the devil. And that's a serious business. That's deadly business that leads to destruction. John says, all the world marveled and followed the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, and that's the result when you worship the devil, destruction. That's why God says in chapter 18, come out of Babylon. Don't stay there because it's going down. So come out, run for your life. I heard another voice from heaven. This is the voice of God. He makes the last appeal. Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached up to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, an interesting picture there, isn't it? God says, run for your life. Don't stay here. You need to come out because it's going down with the plagues. Now, John is actually drawing on the stories of the Old Testament all through Revelation. It's the key. So many stories. Well, he, he's bringing about on, uh, to light the story of the coming out of Babylon back in the days of 
Ezra and so on. We're told back in the book of Ezra that a remnant of Israel left Babylon back then. Notice what it says. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God, that's the temple at Jerusalem, the remnant that were come out of the captivity, that's Babylon, unto Jerusalem. You see where John's getting things from. And lo and behold, what do we find? We find a remnant comes out of Babylon the Great in the end of time. The Bible says, those who leave end time Babylon are called a remnant. John says, the dragon, he's the one that's trying to chase everybody down and get him to worship him. This is the beginning of the conflict. The dragon was wroth or angry with the woman and he went to make war with who? The remnant of a seed. You see how Revelation saturated with pictures from the Old Testament here. Now the remnant in the Bible stands for two things. Number one, it means the survivors of destruction. We have one example of that here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Destruction, if it hadn't have been for God's grace, that's what it would have been like. But he left us a remnant who survived, in other words. But remnant also means in the, in, in the Bible, the faithful. While everybody else is unfaithful or apostate, there is a faithful group. Those are called the remnant. Here we go to the book of Romans and Paul is talking about the story of Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Poor me, I'm the only one. God says, not quite, Elijah. And they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? Notice what it says. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, not been apostate, not turned away, in other words. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. And what does he call them? Even so then, at the present time, there is a remnant. Paul says, just as there was a remnant back then, so there's a remnant now. And he talks about those people who came and were faithful to God, uh, like himself, who, didn't, um, who accepted Jesus. That's what he's saying. So it's a remnant, you see, the faithful ones. That's the second meaning. And when we go to the book of Revelation, in our time, John is talking about, there is global apostasy and it's getting darker, isn't it? I mean, you think of what, what society believes today just 40 years ago, what the society believes today was said to be wrong. And what society said was wrong once upon, now it's okay. I tell you, the world has moved uh, gigantically in many fronts in recent times global apostasy think about sadly Christianity itself the, the reformers would not recognize the churches today most of them what has happened global apostasy in the midst of that John says there is a faithful group he calls them the 144,000 and Tyler read it for us this morning that 144,000, this sort of scares us a bit, doesn't it? 144,000, whoa, how can I make that group? 
Well, we're not going to go there this morning, but I, would, I do want to talk about what they're like, because <laughs> that's important, more important. Notice, there are two portraits, two pictures of this group in Revelation. John says, the first portrait says, these are the survivors of, at Christ's return. These are the ones who survive when Jesus comes. That's chapter 6. He talks about the rocks and the mountains falling on people and, and, and so on. And, and then he sees these people are the survivors in chapter 7. Now these are the 144,000 Israelites, they're called, who have God's seal in their forehead in chapter 7. In other words, he's saying, not all Israel, not all of them. In other words, not all a remnant of Israel is the survivors. That's what he's saying. Not all. This is a remnant. This is a remnant of professing Christians because let's think about Israel for a moment. This is not literal Israel because of the Bible's teaching on this. Just want to remind us of a couple of things. Now to Abraham and his seed, that's Israel, singular, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed singular who is what Christ is the seed of Israel of Abraham he is Israel so Christ is the seed of Abraham he says and if you and me belong to Christ if you are Christ then you are Abraham's seed you are Israel and heirs according to the promise so Israel is anyone in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful truth, isn't it? Thank God for that. Are you in him? Have you put your life in him? It makes you Israel. That's why Paul can say there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor female. Free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not blind. He knows a male from a woman. He knows a Jew from a Greek. He's just saying, when you're in Christ, we're all one because we're in him. He is Israel. So now we are Israel. Then the second portrait of the 144,000 is what Tyler read. And that's what we need to concentrate on for a moment here. Because in Revelation 14, these people are the faithful in the midst of apostasy. John says everybody's going to worship the dragon because they either take the mark or they worship the image of the beast or they worship the beast. So the whole world is in apostasy. Not quite. There are some faithful. And then he pictures them and Tyler read that for us. The 144,000. This time they're said to have God's name on their forehead, Tyler read. What does that mean? It means they have the character of God. Amen. That's what it means. They belong to him and they have his character. What does that mean? Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter 34 where Moses wants to see God. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What did he proclaim? And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity. What's this a picture of? 
the, 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 the 144,000 or the end time remnant are the most godlike, kind, nice people on the planet. Don't miss that. The 144,000 is not about being vegan, though vegan's good. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I happen to be like that myself. But it's not about that. It's about being like God. What are you like in the home? What are you like in the workplace? Are you a merciful person? Forgiving? Gracious? Long-suffering? This is what the remnant are. Wow, when I think about that, it's easy to be, to be the outward, but are we like that? That's a beautiful picture. That's what our God is like. That's what his people are like. That is incredible. Not only that, these people that have the character of God, they love Jesus. What does it say? The, they're virgins. That means they're in love with somebody and they've kept themselves pure for this one person. And who is it? It's Jesus. They follow Jesus wherever he goes. You see, this is the, this is the remnant. This is the 144,000. They love Jesus. I ask you a question. I ask myself a question. Are, we, are you in love with Jesus? Really? Like Paul can say, for me to live is Christ? Wow. This is something special, isn't it? You can see, this is a real special people. Who wouldn't want to know a group like this? They are in love with Christ. Why? Why do they love Jesus? Because the third thing is they've been redeemed. It says twice in this passage, they've been redeemed. They've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're like this. That's why they're in love with Jesus. And it says they're faultless before God. Now, this doesn't mean sinless. Don't, don't, go, don't think that direction, because sometimes that discourages people. What does it mean? We know they're not sinlessly perfect, because the Bible says, if ever, in the Greek, if ever we say that we have no sin, present tense, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Paul can say, for all have sinned, past tense in the Greek, and fall short, present tense, of the glory of God. I would encourage you to go home and read a chapter in the book, Acts of the Apostles, called Transformed by Grace. Transformed by Grace. There is a beautiful balance. This is no excuse for sin, by the way. <laughs> There's never an excuse for sin. The devil didn't make you do it. <laughs> You never blame the devil. It's here. But read Transformed by Grace in the book Acts of the Apostles. Beautiful balance between these two extremes that we can get into if we're not careful. Sloppy Christianity or sort of a Christianity where it's all up to me and, uh, and this sort of thing. No. These are faultless before God, not sinless. That's what it means. And how come they're like this? How come these people are like this, that they're faultless before God? Here's why. Romans 3.23, let's pick it up again. All have sinned, past tense, fall short, present tense, of the glory of God, and being justified freely. Justified freely. That means declared righteous. Counted as if we never sinned, even though we're as guilty as a pig in the mud. I remember some, some uh, friends of mine, uh, they used to steal milk bottles. 
off the front doors. Remember the days when you had milk bottles delivered to the front doors? And these kids would go around stealing milk bottles. And uh, one day the dad heard about this as a boy. If my boys keep this up, they're going to become criminals one day. You know, it might end up killing somebody to steal something. So he went to the police uh, constable in this town um, where uh, these boys were from. And he said, listen, I want you to arrest my boys next time they're stealing milk bottles. And then he went to his judge friend, uh, the magistrate in the town. He said, I want you to try my boys in your court. I'm going to put the wind up these boys. <laughs> so the boys were caught one day with the milk bottles in their hand. And the policeman caught them, put them in the paddy wagon, put them in the, in the van and took them to the courthouse. And there they stood before the judge. And he said, boys, how do you plead? Uh, guilty, your honour. Guilty, your honour. And then he gave them a lecture on stealing and so on. And, then, and when he'd finished giving the lecture, he said, acquitted. What does that mean? It means you're not guilty. But they were caught with the, red, the milk bottles in their hand. He didn't want to give them a court record, I guess, but he said acquitted. That's the same word. That's the same idea. Justified. Treated as if we never even did it. It's better than forgiveness. Forgiveness means you did it. <laughs> justified means you can't as if you never did it. And that's what God does and it's free. You know, brothers and sisters, this truth will drive you to reach people. This truth drove Paul to reach the world in his day. This truth drove Martin Luther to do what he did. This truth drove their pioneers. This truth drove John Wesley to transform England through the gospel. Beautiful, isn't it? Being justified freely by his grace through what? Redemption that comes is in Christ Jesus. These are the ones, says John, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, the end time crisis he's talking about in chapter 7, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Have you been to Calvary? Are you living at the foot of the cross of Calvary? Because that's the only way to be able to stand before God anytime is in the righteousness of Christ. So these are transformed people, this 144,000 or this remnant. Now, notice what Ellen White says, and that's why I don't want to get into a discussion. Is this literal? Is this symbolic? Let's forget that. That's not the real issue. This is the issue. Let us strive with all the power that God has given to us to be among the 144,000. That's a good, a good encouragement to us. Let us do all we can to be among them. It's remnant. God's faithful people in the end of time. All right, what a picture. How are they faithful in the midst of global apostasy? How are these people able to be faithful when everybody else is unfaithful? Because that's going to be it. Do you know, brothers and sisters, Jesus said in the end of time, it is going to get so deceptive that even if possible, the very elect would be deceived. This is not going to be a cakewalk. This is going to be real tough stuff. So how can you and I not be apostate ourselves because that's going to be the pressure on you and me. Then don't worry about it. That's what John is trying to get at to us. We need to be thick with the Almighty clearly here. Well, these people have responded to God's final messages. And I want to just share with you quickly what they are. 
so that we can get a handle on how to be among these people. And you can be, let me tell you, all of us can be. More than 144,000 literal people are going to be saved, let me tell you. More than that, no question about it. The Bible is very clear on that. More than 144,000 in the end time as well, literally. Okay, so don't get hung up. If you get 144,001, you miss out. That's not where the Bible's going. This is remnant language. All right, now let's go. The first angel says, the hour of his judgment has come, it says. Now in the Greek, it means when the angel says that, it has begun. Brothers and sisters, this is no time to mess around. While we're sitting here, there's a judgment going on in heaven. That's the reality of the... Well, they probably stopped the Sabbath. I'm sure. But this is not ordinary time. And that's what God is trying to get across to us in the book of Daniel and the Revelation. Judgment has begun. And he calls us to do three things in light of this. Number one, fear God. That means respect God, love God, stand in awe of God. How do you do that? You keep his commandments. That's what he tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Number two, we must glorify God in the light of the fact that there's a judgment going on. Who do you live for? Are we living for me or him and his? That's what he's saying. I want to live to bring honor to my God. Number three, worship God as creator. That's the third call in this And how do you do this? How is it that you do this? Well, the final battle of global control is wedged between two texts. One starts it, one ends it. Here they are. You're familiar with them. The dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God. That's the opening salvo in this war. And then it ends with this text. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. These are the most loyal people on the planet, in other words. These people really love God because they're prepared to follow God in anything. So how does that happen? Thank God it says the everlasting gospel. The angel has the gospel. What is the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. It is the power of God. It's the dynamite of God. What for? For, every, for? To salvation, for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you, are you resting in him? John Patton was trying to find a word to translate the Bible uh, into uh, the, the word faith for the people of Vanuatu when it was called the New Hebrides. Couldn't find a word for faith to get across to the people. He's coming to a home of a friend one day and his friend's lying out in the sun like you can do in the islands. Ah, beautiful warm sunlight. And John Patton says to this guy, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? He said, I'm just, I'm just reclining. And Patton said, I've got my word. I've got my word. And when he translated the Bible into the language of the people, this is how he translated John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever reclines all their weight on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you reclining your weight on Jesus? We sing the song, don't we? We're leaning on the everlasting arms. Are we throwing ourselves on Jesus? Babylon has fallen, says the second angel. How come it's fallen? How come it's fallen? He tells us, because she made everyone drink her wine, her false teachings. That's what that means there. Now think of it. Babylon's false teachings corrupt the world. 
Think about number one, the idea of the mortal soul. So if their soul is immortal somewhere, maybe we can contact them. But people do that, but they're not contacting the dead, they're contacting demons. That's corrupting. What about the idea of Sunday sacredness? Well, Christianity has forgotten the Sabbath, and soon we forget the Lord of the Sabbath. That's why we have evolution, let me tell you, because Christianity forgot the Sabbath. And now we've got to the point where even the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, doesn't even believe in creation in six days. And we've gone even further than that. Many people don't even now believe there's a God, e.g. Richard Dawkins. You see what happens. It corrupts the world. What about the idea of an eternally burning hell? There are more atheists today because of that teaching than you'd care to think of. If that's what God's like, he roasts and toasts people for eternity. He needs a saviour. That's the thinking of people. So what's God saying? Doctrine matters. We better believe this because oftentimes we hear doctrine is not important. It is vital. It's, Jesus said the truth will set you free. Truth liberates. Error undermines. That brings us to the fourth angel's message. So we're up to three, three messages so far if you're counting. <laughs> I don't want to jump to the fourth angel because what does the fourth angel say? Oh, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. He says, and the earth was illuminated with his glory and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen. It's fallen. It's become a dwelling place for demons, a prison of every foul spirit. Got the picture? The world is dark in the end of time. And why does it become filled with demons? He says, for, because all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of their fornication. Doctrine matters. Error will lead us ultimately into demons. That's what he's telling us here. That's why God brings the, the fourth message we're looking at of the five, the night cry where God says, come out, my people. Don't stay there. Because if you stay there, you receive the plagues heard another angel, another voice I should say from heaven, come out of her my people lest he says you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities, question how do you leave Babylon how do you leave what's dear to you how do you leave what you've grown up in how do you leave what you may be a pastor of, how do you do that thank God there's an answer revelation tells us how we leave that which is actually going to take us to destruction. I saw something like a sea of glass, it says, mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Do you see what's going on here? What's the song of Moses? Read Exodus 15. Israel's caught between a rock and a hard place. They've come to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are breathing down their necks behind them. A mountain range is running. They're, 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 they're in trouble. And then God says, he come along and he blew with his wind. And parted the sea. And they sang the song and it basically it goes like this. God, if it hadn't been for you, we would not got through this. Your power got us through. What's the song of the Lamb? Well, of course, that's when, how they got out of Egypt. They put the blood on the doorpost and the angel passed over the homes with the blood on it. What's God telling us here? 
Only one way to leave. Only one way to help other people leave is the cross of Calvary. That's the power of God that will change a heart. Nothing else will. The power of God unto salvation. That's what he's pointing us. Last angel's message we finished. This is the fifth of the five messages. Don't worship the beast and his image or receive his mark. Don't worship on Sunday. We could, that's what it means. Keep the Sabbath is where he's pointing us. If you do, you receive the plagues. That's what he says. This is serious business. I want you to notice what's interesting comments made here. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered it is the third angel's message in verity. Now hang on a bit. How on earth is the third angel's message justification by faith in verity? Have you read the third angel's message lately? <laughs> Let me read it. Let me put it up here. And the reason is, is because Calvary mirrors the seven plagues. Notice what it says. Third angel followed them saying with a loud voice. Notice what's in yellow here. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. No mercy here. This is, this is, this is it into the cup of his indignation. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, take this cup from me. Remember? What did he say? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What cup did Jesus not want to drink in Gethsemane? The, the cup of God's wrath. The seven last plagues. That's what Jesus was saying. I don't want to go through what people are one day going to go through. You see, the seven last plagues mirror, Calvary mirrors the plagues. Just think of the last three for a moment. What was the fifth plague? The fifth plague, there it is, was darkness. It was dark around the cross. Why was it dark around the cross when Jesus died? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He was entering the very domain of the devil now because he took our sin. Whoa! That's why, that, he, he, he suffered that plague. What about the sixth plague? Babylon's support is withdrawn. Remember, the river dries up. No more water flows into Babylon. No more people flow. Loses its support. What about Jesus on the cross? Did he lose support? Too right he did. His disciples stood afar off. Everybody mocked him, made fun of him. Even God seemed to be against him. My God, why have you abandoned me? Wow, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on here. The sixth plague is going on here. He suffered what people will one day suffer in the end of time when they cling to sin. It seemed as God was saying, Jesus, my son, I can have no more to do with you. You have been made sin because you've taken the sin of my people. Of course, God was there. But it seemed that he wasn't to Jesus at that point. And what about the last plague? The Bible says the last plague, there was a tremendous earthquake. And, and Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is done, is said in the last plague, if you've read the plague. There's a massive earthquake. What happened at the cross of Calvary? There was an earthquake that rent things and, and 
And Jesus cried out, it is, it is finished. What's finished? The cup is empty. I've drunk it all. That's what he's saying. There's nothing left. I've taken the wrath of God that people will experience one day. No wonder God says, come out, my people. And oh, what a beautiful thing it is. Now I can understand what Ellen White was talking about. Justification in verity is the third angel's message. There it is. We need to rest in Christ, don't we? This thief on the cross, how much good did this guy do to get right with God? Zilch. Zero. Nada. He's stuck on a cross, nailed to a cross, and he just turns to Jesus and says, Lord, got a place for me? Remember me? Jesus said, yeah, you're going to be with me in my kingdom. That's what we call justification. Well, the evidence of that is seen in our life, of course. That comes out in the fruits of our life. What a wonderful God we have. Come out of Babylon, my people, he says. You know, sometimes Babylon needs to come out of us, doesn't it? <laughs> sometimes we need to get serious ourselves. What is it that I'm holding on to that I know I should, I should quit and give to God and say, Lord, you call the shots, I'm going to follow you. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, what messages there are in these messages that you give to the world, but Lord, they're also for us. Are we serious? Are we really the remnant? Or oh, we may have the name Seventh-day Adventist, may have got baptized, but are we like our God? Do we have his character? Do we love Jesus with all our heart? Have we been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Oh, Lord... This is no time to mess around. This is time to say, Lord Jesus, here am I. I throw myself on you. If you'd like to say to the Lord this morning, Lord, I want to rest. I want to recline on Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And Lord, I want to be an instrument in your hand to help people. Just raise your hand this morning. Heads are bowed or eyes are closed. Just want to tell the Lord, Lord, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all yours. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au.
Finished by Fountain View Academy. Coming up next, Jason Hamilton will sing Justified. Justified by faith alone, peace with God through Christ the Son, righteousness not of my own. I will stand before the throne, justified. of all, maker of eternal law, glorious king consuming fire, judges man before his bar. The accuser shouts condemn, all have strayed and all have sinned, perfect justice your demand. The mortal guilty then. Just- 
God through Christ the Son, righteousness not of my own. I will stand before the throne, justified in this hour of wrath and tears. Love will cast a fear. Christ the advocate will stand for the soul who trusts in him. I am his and he is mine. He declares with open Christ's sake declares decrees, set apart, redeem, set free, and this soul shall Our series You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonter, for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled You Need a Home. This story is a little different from the previous ones in this series. Here, the God who is always with us took a hand in my life without being asked. He knew what I needed to do, even though I had no sense of need. Not only does this God who loves us answer when we call to him, but because he loves us when we commit our lives to him, he will take over and guide us in the direction he knows is best. He can do this, you see, because he knows the future as well as the past and the present. David, a friend of mine who was a financial consultant, made the comment that everyone should own their own home. He argued that a person who does not own a home will most likely become a burden on someone else when they become old. I had never given the idea of owning a home much thought, as in the nearly 26 years of married life, my wife and I had moved from place to place and had lived in 11 different houses. 
In some of the Pacific Island countries where we had lived, it had been practically impossible for us, as foreigners, to own houses, even if we had wanted to. A few days after David's comment, I was on a plane between Auckland and Tonga with a colleague, Bill Irvine, who was a few years older than I. As we chatted about one thing and another, he looked at me and said, Alan, you should seriously consider buying your own home. If you don't act now, you'll be too old to get a loan from a bank. Even if you have to borrow most of the finance, at least you will have started to build up equity in an appreciating asset. If you come up to retirement without owning a home, you'll be an embarrassment to the organisation and to your family. For some reason, Bill's advice brought back to my mind the earlier comment made by my financial consultant friend, David. And it made a strong impression on my mind. When I returned home, I told my wife, Margaret, about the advice and added, maybe the Lord is trying to tell us something. Perhaps he wants us to buy a house. We prayed about the idea and decided to look around to see what was available and to assess our finances. You might remember that I told you in a previous story that we had a near new car that we could change for an older model making available about four or five thousand dollars. We had some savings in the bank and we had an organ worth around $3,600 which we reluctantly decided we would have to sacrifice. Margaret is a music teacher and it would have been nice to keep the organ for teaching purposes. But we still had two pianos so she could continue teaching piano. We thought that altogether we could raise enough for a deposit on a small house. Next we got a map of the South Auckland area and marked the position of my office at Papatoitoi and the position of the high school at Mangare, which our two children attended. We decided that we wanted to live within walking and cycling distance of these two places. When I drew a circle around each point, the two circles intersected down one street only, Portage Road, Papatoitoi. We drove down Portage Road to see whether there were any for sale signs in front of any houses, but there were none. We advertised the car and only one person replied, but he bought, so we didn't need any more replies. We advertised the organ and a couple came to see it on the weekend. They said they liked the organ and expected to come back the following weekend to pick it up. On the Tuesday, we received a letter from Margaret's mother. The letter contained a cheque for several thousand dollars with a note to the effect that mother had just sold some shares and thought we could use the money to put toward a house. This changed the picture considerably as we could now look at a reasonably sized house which we really needed for our family. We visited a real estate agent on the Wednesday and made arrangements for him to show us several houses on Friday. On that Friday morning, we asked God to show us what we should do, and soon found ourselves looking over houses with the agent. The first couple of houses didn't impress us at all, and they were not where we wanted to live. Almost without us being aware of it, the agent drove us a few blocks across Papatoitoi until we pulled up outside 
a substantial high-set brick house. It was built on a good-sized block next to a tree-covered part of a school ground. The house looked very plain as the galvanised double garage doors and handrails up the front steps had never been painted and the yard had not been developed. As we got out of the car, we realised that we were in Portage Road, Papatoitoi. The house had no for sale sign and the agent explained that it had only just come on the market. Inside the house, we noticed the loud wallpaper designs and colours, but the layout of the rooms was just what we were looking for. Downstairs, there was a double garage with room for a workshop and a large undeveloped area that could be made into a flat. Something about an overhead cupboard in the kitchen looked odd, as it appeared to be twisted, but I didn't think much about it at the time. The agent said the owners were asking $49,000 for the house, and we were surprised at how low the figure was compared with the size of the house and the other houses we had looked at that morning. Isn't it amazing how house prices have risen since then? On the kitchen sink was a card indicating that another agent had already shown a prospective buyer through earlier that day. After looking through that house, the agent took us to a couple more houses, but we kept thinking of the one in Portage Road. So soon went back to the agent's office. As we sat down in front of the desk, the agent asked, what do you want to do? Do you want to sign up for the house in Portage Road? I looked at Margaret questioningly. She usually takes a long time to make up her mind. She can spend half an hour, or so it seems to me, just deciding on a piece of dress material that costs a few dollars. But without hesitation, she now volunteered. Let's sign for this one. We offered $48,000 on condition that the bank would grant a loan. Within a few hours, the loan was granted and the owners had accepted our offer, so everything seemed to be going fine, with final settlement in three or four weeks. Incidentally, the agent told us a few days later that the person who had looked through the house earlier on that Friday morning had come back to the office later in the day wanting to sign up for the house, but had been too late. There had been a reason why God had impressed Margaret to sign without delay. I hope the other would-be purchaser found another house to his liking. About this time, God showed us that he could plan better than we could. On the weekend, the couple who were going to buy the organ rang to say they couldn't take it because it wouldn't fit in their lounge room. So we were $3,600 short. A few days later, we learned that a friend who was to spend a year on Norfolk Island was looking for somewhere to store his car. We told him he was welcome to leave it in one of our garages in our new house. He had seen our advertisement for our organ and asked, by the way, have you sold your organ yet? We told him how the expected sale had fallen through and he asked how much money we needed to make up the shortfall. We told him we were short by $3,600 and he immediately responded, I've just sold a house down the country and don't plan to do anything about buying a new one till I get back from Norfolk. 
The money's only sitting in the bank, and tax will take a fair percentage of the interest in any case. You can have the $3,600 interest-free for as long as you need it. And he wrote out a cheque for the needed amount, just like that. So we didn't need to sell the organ, and it proved to be a blessing many times after that. And that was not all. Inflation was running at almost 18% at the time, and the bank interest rate was 12%. Then the government decided to assist first home buyers by allowing half of the interest paid as a direct tax rebate for the first five years of the loan. So we effectively paid only 6% interest on our loan for five years. Over the next three years, we changed the wallpaper and made various other improvements to the house, including the development of a flat downstairs. In the process, we realised that the twisted cupboard in the kitchen was caused by the floor sagging under the weight of the pantry and the hot water cylinder. This problem was easily solved by jacking up the floor and supporting it by a wall in the downstairs flat. It did occur to me when I was making the repairs that the low price of the house was probably due to the previous owner thinking that there were major structural problems, so he just wanted out at any price. Then we were asked to go to PNG, so we rented out the house. The income from rent, together with some kind help from my father, and what we were able to save in PNG made it possible to pay the house off completely within about five years. Because of the currency exchange rate, every PNG kina, or dollar, we were able to save and send to New Zealand became two New Zealand dollars, so that helped a lot in paying off the loan. I'm convinced that the God who is always with us knows us so well that he works things out to suit our individual personalities. He knew that I would be quite happy to do some work on the house, so he directed us to a house that, while cheap to buy, needed work done on it. He knows you too, and when you know him, you will appreciate his loving and caring interest in you. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3avianaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456. May God bless you. And remember, you are not alone. You have been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.